0: This is It's Okay That You're Not Okay, and I'm your host, Megan Devine. This week on the show, a re-release of one of your all-time favorites from season one, Dr. Kate Bowler on the madness that is New Year's resolutions, finding hope when life feels impossible, and the complicated math of suffering. It's a great way to close one year and enter the next, especially if you are not that psyched about this holiday. Okay. Okay. Part one of my conversation with special guest, historian, author, and queen of awkward conversations, Kate Bowler, right after this break.
1: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX80. feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
2: Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com.
3: Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms?
0: One, this episode is an encore performance. I am on break working on a giant new project, so we're releasing a mix of our favorite episodes from the first three seasons of the show. This episode is from season one, in which I answered listener questions, sometimes on my own, sometimes with a guest. So if you want more of these Q&A style episodes, you can find the entire collection from season one wherever you get your podcasts. Second note. While we cover a lot of emotional relational territory in our time here together, this show is not a substitute for skilled support for the licensed mental health provider or for professional supervision related to your work. I really want you to take what you learn here, take your thoughts and your reflections out into your own world and talk about it all. Hey friends. So a lot of the questions that we got for this week's show can be boiled down to one thing. How do I find hope in the year to come, knowing what I know about life right now? These last few years of hardship upon hardship in our personal lives and the wider world don't exactly make hope or even optimism that easy to access. The closing of one year and the entrance of a new year is just not that easy to navigate with any kind of excitement about what's ahead. I always aim to open these shows without being a downer, but so far I have not succeeded. there are hundreds of beginnings and endings. In any given 12-month span, both culturally and personally, beginnings and endings happen all the time. This whole idea that the year ends in December and begins anew in January of the Gregorian calendar is just one of many transition points. One of my favorite things about today's guest is the ground she covers with her brain. She's like this amazing Venn diagram of religion, self-help, health, kindness, the minutia of being human— all stitched together with this deep view of culture and religion. She definitely gets what I just rambled about, that the new years don't always match the calendar. And even when they do, the new year isn't always that fresh start you long for. Dr. Kate Bowler is an author, historian, and one of my favorite people in the world these days. She received a master's of religion from Yale Divinity School and a PhD from Duke University. She's an associate professor at Duke Divinity School. Her latest book, No Cure for Being Human, grapples with her diagnosis of stage 4 cancer at the age of 35 and the intersection of blind optimism and the lack of control inherent in being a real live human with limitations. Dr. Bowler made the whole country get used to speaking frankly about suffering through her popular podcast, Everything Happens, which is truly awesome. And you should listen to that, too. In today's episode, Kate and I talk about all manner of math. And before you stress out about that, it's the math of human suffering. Don't stress out about that either. It's going to be great. All right, everybody. I am so glad to have my friend Kate in the studio. Well, Studio Zoom with me today. So Kate, thank you so much for being here. Hello, my dear. Thanks Hello. for having me. Absolutely. So you are the one person that I wanted to talk to you for this end of the year, New Year's, not really a special, but uh, the, the New Year episode, because there's there's so much in all of your work, your whole body of work, all of your books, about trying to live into the future when the present is so crappy. <laughs> when you know <laughs> what you know about things, so yes, that's right, right. Like how yeah. how do you have any sort of optimism or hope in the future? Now we're gonna get to that. I wanna. Jump right into some listener questions, because I think that's going to be the best, the best way to access the brilliance of your mind and your expertise here. So you okay with that if I jump right in with a question? All right, let's go. So listener question number one, how do you accept that you're leaving the last year that you shared with your person?
4: Mm, Yeah, that's right. Second anyone uses the word new, there's immediately the knowledge that we have to then move on without Maybe the life we thought we'd be, or the person we thought we would have. I I think that's such a such a gorgeous, honest thing to say. Because with all the focus on um, New Year's resolutions and like twenty, you know, it's always like it's gonna be, next year's gonna be the best year yet. Right. And and for many of us, especially when it comes to love, is like so for for that love, there needs to be a moment to acknowledge that sometimes the best days of that love are behind us. It reminds me of some of the people I've met who create almost like a like a funeral for the year for the for the thing that came before sometimes it was the person that they were the love that they had but just something that honors the immensity of of being feeling like you're like filled to the brim of details of something you're scared about forgetting just being honest about those fears like
0: maybe i'm scared of starting something new because i don't want to let go i love that idea of of having a funeral or having some sort of ceremony to mark the end of the form of relatedness that came before.
4: Yeah, maybe it's not just like uh, the countdown to the new year, but just having a moment to count down the, the one that's just coming to a close. Mm-hmm. You're right. I think we have this aggressive futurism
0: that prevents us from being honest. Aggressive futurism is a fantastic way of looking at it. Yeah. There's a There's a word I want to pick up on in this listener question. They write, how do you accept that you're leaving the mm-hmm. last year you shared with your person? And I think this is a really good one because in your books, and on your Instagram, you touch on acceptance a lot. So can you talk to me about your relationship with acceptance? Oh, it's horrible. Honestly, (laughs) I am. (laughs) Acceptance
4: is truly a nightmare. I, uh...
0: I've been living with
4: incurable cancer for um, for a long time um, longer than I wanted to, and I kept thinking that life was going to be a series of challenges that I would overcome and then I could put things behind me but uh, part of trying to figure out how to live it seems is is figuring out what maybe just to have a thicker category for acceptance to have almost like a higher tolerance. For the the uncertainty of of having things that I I love that I can't get back to and not ever going back to that like durable indestructible vision of myself I thought I would have so I was diagnosed when I was 35 and I am 41 and I feel so grateful every time I hit a new year but at the same time I need a minute to to think um what uh, what are the things I cannot change it's that gorgeous serenity prayer but then how can I find like a little bit of traction a little bit of like change wiggle ability to move because gosh i'm not fully built for acceptance i need a little bit of something that yeah. i can like totally kick the dust off
0: of and and move around and i think in a lot of ways we weaponize acceptance right it's yes. it's applied <laughs> from the outside as this end goal that you need to get to in yes. order to be palatable to the others around you like you just need to accept that there are some things that your body can't do anymore <laughs>
4: Yeah. Screw that. Really? No, <laughs> I think I spend, I spend most, you're right. I spend most of my energy trying to not accept most things because I mean, I, I think that living at least for me, when I think about the the, the context of like, I'm a, I'm a professor, so I, I have to figure out how to keep changing and moving forward. I've got complicated medical care in which I very frequently have to yell at people when I'd rather use my nice indoor voice. And like, if I don't constantly push against acceptance, it goes into stagnation and despair. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes not accepting things <laughs> has been a really important part of me staying alive and also just learning how to evolve and change because I'll, I'll never get to be the person I was before. Yeah. Some things
0: are unacceptable, right? <laughs> yes. I love how you yes. paired that though, Kate, that like acceptance in some ways is giving up and being passive, like sort of pitting it against self-advocacy,
2: right? Mm-hmm. Just as you said right there, like
0: <sighs> with my medical needs, I can't just accept that this is my condition and this is what needs to happen, that I need to ferociously advocate for myself. And sometimes that feels... The opposite of acceptance. I'm a bigger fan of allowing rather than acceptance because I think acceptance comes with this connotation that you're cool with it, right? <laughs> if we go back to, if we yes. go back to our question, yes. our listener question here, how do I accept that I'm leaving the last year I shared with my person? So the, the understory there is that their person died in 2021 and we're facing a new year without this person. How do I accept that I'm leaving that year? Well, some things are unacceptable. It's not okay. Yes, You don't mm-hmm. have to be... "Quote unquote," good with that, in order to be healthy mm-hmm. and human and human great.
4: Yes, well. that's right. It's like uh, so much of the experiment, right? Is just living with unacceptable truths. Yeah. What a strange thing. I always love it when people say that. There's that lovely quote from um, is it the mayor of Easttown. It's the Kate Winslet character, and mm-hmm. she says, "You know, at some point, like you don't. Ex- I, I don't know if she said you don't accept it, but it's like, but at some point, you just have to put groceries in the fridge." It, it didn't have that sort of like shiny, neo-Buddhist, everything's fine with me, I am the ocean <laughs> kind of quality about
0: right. it. And it's a stubbornness to that that I really, I, I really respect. Yeah. Stay tuned for more coming up right after this break.
1: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other.
0: Hey, before we get back to this week's guest, I want to talk with you about exploring your losses through writing. There are lots of grief writing workshops out there with prompts like, tell us about the funeral, that sort of thing. My 30 day writing your grief course is not like that. (laughs) The prompts are deeper, they're more nuanced, they're designed to get you into your heart and into your own actual story. Now, writing isn't going to cure anything, but it can help you hear your own voice, and that is incredibly powerful. You can read all about the Writing Your Grief course at refugeingrief.com W-Y-G. That is W-Y-G for Writing Your Grief. You can see a sample prompt from the course and get writing your own words in minutes. My 30-day Writing Your Grief course is still one of the best things I've ever made for you. Come join more than 10,000 people who have taken the Writing Your Grief course, com backslash wyg, or you can find the link in the show notes. So there's a, a related question that kind of goes back to what you were talking about with marking the end of one period before you enter the next period. And so the, the next question, ready? Mm-hmm. Okay, it's going to sound almost like the first question, but there's a slight angle change here. So question two. How do you go into a new year knowing that your person won't be there for it? If my person died this year, now I have to start saying they died last year and it makes them feel (sighs) so far away from me. So something kind of inherent in that question is the passage of time that gets um, sort of crystallized once we switch from December 31st to January 1st, like now I have to say my person died last year. Or if your person died in 2020, you can't say they died last year anymore.
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it kind of gets to the, um, the math of suffering that gets applied to all those of us who suffer which is that there's the kind of a rough calculation in the listener it's like when someone says how when when how, you know someone died you're like well how old were they like yeah. immediately there's a sense that our our grief is rendered invalid with the passage of time or our love doesn't sometimes even increase and our grief increase over the course of um so that i do feel like there's with with the passage of time comes the feeling of needing to justify Either moving on or moving, whatever that means, or not moving on, and whatever that means to to an audience. And there's like a there's a jury out there who gets to decide. And I have not found that there is a really easy way to describe what suffering has meant over time. Like I, you know, I for instance, even if I just said, "Oh, I was diagnosed six years ago," truth is, it was three years after that. That was probably the worst moment of my life. You know, it wasn't the diagnosis; it was the facing a different life or death surgery and trying to still have problems that made sense to anyone after they thought that it was all over by then. And so I'm like a big fan of bad, bad math, mm. like where we just
0: assume we can't add up other people's lives because I, I know I can't. I love that. I remember that was actually a line in your new book that stood out to me when I was reading it, rereading it again yesterday, The The Math of Suffering. Mm. Right, It's such a beautiful way of looking at it because you're right, like the inherent in this question that this listener sent in was, I'm going to have to start defending the fact that I miss them or that I am, quote unquote, still grieving because I'm not going to be able to say, oh, it was just earlier this year that they died or it was just last year that they were here. There is this um, judgment that enters the chat at the change of the year, right? Yeah. And I really love what you just said there about I'm, I'm gonna commit myself to bad math. I just paraphrase what you said, but as a person who has a, a hard time with math in general, I, I love, I kept thinking like, ooh, we need a new applied mathematics, the mathematics yes, of suffering, that only the person <laughs> at yeah. the center of that equation is the one that gets to say what time means or yeah. or what suffering means and how we judge yeah. that. Because there there is so much judgment about how you're suffering how much you should be suffering, what the worst times were for you. It's really interesting that you brought that part up that, you know, when you tell your story diagnosed six years ago with cancer and people are like, Oh, that must've been such a terrible time for you. And what you just shared was that actually that sucked. And my equation of suffering actually had a different high point.
4: I think too the part of the fear, at least for me of having someone who's had a chronically (laughs) <laughs> terrible, terrible, wonderful, but pretty terrible, a chronically terrible life. Isn't that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just, sorry. It's just that the more things happen, you know, the more that there's this kind of creeping fear that if people don't understand, then I'll be left alone. If people don't understand, I won't have the community and the support and the friendship. Like if I can't make other people understand my suffering math, then I'm no longer translatable as lovable, carryable, intelligible. Then you get untranslated in a way. And it's been hard to manage the the fear that persistent suffering creates. And that that's something I recognize in other people is the feeling untranslatable anymore. It
0: makes me think of survival as mammals. I know that you can hang hmm. with my tangents here. I'm really into it already. Right? Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. So (laughs) while you're describing like this, this fear of being untranslatable, that I'm going to have to explain what it's like to be me clearly enough so that people stay with me, Mm -hmm. that drive for connection and being seen. It is so fundamental to our, our existence as human animals. This is why excommunication is such a powerful tool. If you mm. look at you're gonna know this one better than than I do with your history and your background. Which ones, Kate, are the um the tradition on the East Coast where you where the whole community gathers around you and if are you've you, done something like that. Well, I'm yeah. thinking about shunning. Yeah. Yeah. Can you describe shunning for folks who don't know what what I'm rambling about here? Describe shunning for me, Kate.
4: Well, it is a powerful tool of social cohesion and lack thereof, where if someone uh, violates like a sacred or special tenant of the community, that they will be kind of exiled by no one acknowledging or speaking to them. And so, like, I have a family member who was shunned for having an organ at her wedding that went to within a in a service that prohibited uh, musical instruments which is very funny now but was very sad at the time but it's it's the it's the ability to render somebody invalid by not socially
0: seeing them and it's really really powerful because we need each other so and that that shunning that we're talking about. It belongs to specific spiritual and religious traditions, but you can also find it showing up in pop culture. Totally outing my nerd here. But I believe on one of the um one of the Star Trek shows, gosh, I'm gonna get so many messages about this for not knowing which part of trivia the star, right? Which Star Trek trivia I'm quoting here? Apologies. My brain is full, everybody. <laughs> but there is an episode where I believe it's a, it's a Klingon shunning excommunication thing where like the person who did the socially unacceptable thing stands in the middle and everybody makes a circle, looks the person in, their, in the eye and then crosses their arms in front of their chest and turns their back. Mm. Right. That's what I think of when I think about shunning used as communal operational force right like (laughs) this is how we keep people performing the way that we want them to perform and what you described in talking about like i i want my suffering to be translatable i need people to hear me and understand me and see me because if you can't understand me then i lose connection and community and if i can't be translated i can't be seen yeah and that is its own form of sort of communal shunning I think that's why, as a
4: historian, I got so excited about sort of studying religious and cultural cliches, because I think that was exactly the reason why I found them so interesting was it felt like if I can study the cultural scripts, like the stories people tell about suffering, like, you know, everything happens for a reason or, you know, God never gives you more than you can handle, that kind of thing. If I understand the script, then at least I understand when I'm off script, because I, I have felt I've, I've just, you know, having a chronic problem i have found that so little of it actually creates the kind of social understanding that i'm looking for if i say something like oh yeah it's pretty terrible and it stayed really it's pretty much stayed pretty awful there's really no it doesn't suit the american culture of optimism it doesn't give anyone the exit the cultural exit ramp that they're looking for i think um social cohesion and cultural scripts tell us a lot about when we're in and when we're out yeah, because we certainly feel it when we're out.
0: Yeah, and I think the temptation is to bend yourself to fit the social construct so that you don't get yeah. shunned, so that you don't feel alone. If you've lost your person or you have a really impossible diagnosis or a chronic illness or injury, you know you need your community. And the temptation, mm-hmm. I think, is like maybe I'm the wrong one. Well, part of uh, yeah. the way that I see a lot of my work, Kate, is that like you're not the one that's wrong, the culture is wrong. And you and mm. I you know, work at different angles or different starting points for this same challenge, which is it's it's the culture that misunderstands suffering. It is yeah. our entertainment and the stories that we tell ourselves and what we believe is the most helpful thing to do for somebody when they're suffering. That's where the problem is. It's mm-hmm. not in this person who asked this question about you know how do I go into a, no, a new year knowing that my this is a year my person will never see. The implications or the connotations inside that is like I'm going to have to justify this. And I think this also what we were just discussing also points to why it feels so important for people to justify their right to suffer or their right to be in pain or their right to be having a hard time that doesn't match the Disney stereotype or the, you know, you got through the like that transformation narrative, right? You and I have yakked about this before that yes. transformation narrative for like after. if you do your suffering yeah. correctly, then you come yeah. back a bigger, stronger, wiser person, and the bluebirds fly from your brain and and everything yeah. works out exactly as it should. and And I think we know that that's not true. And yeah. that need to explain our suffering, translate our suffering. I love that phrase that you used to talk about that. We feel like we're failing a cultural script, and we're going to be left even more alone. But we also know yeah. that we need to tell the truth about our own experience.
4: <laughs> yes, that's right. Right. Yeah. So
0: that's that's an interesting point of discomfort culturally and personally <laughs> and professionally. Yes. Right. Yes. Trying to rewrite those scripts. And it really does take more people willing to tell the truth about their math suffering, their suffering of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, you said it so much better and I can't remember what it was, but it was awesome. <laughs> it re- it really does take people talking about the reality of suffering. Yeah. To start changing those bigger conversations so that we don't feel like our math is getting questioned every time we turn mm-hmm. around and every time there's a year change. That's right. This is just the first half of my conversation with Kate Bowler. We had so much fun talking together and yes, we had fun talking about this really serious stuff. That's what we do together. This conversation was so much fun and so interesting and had so much useful stuff in it we decided to split it into two parts this is part one part two is coming your way next week don't miss it friends you know how most people are going to scan through the show description here and think i do not want to talk about all that pain stuff well here's where you come in your reviews let people know it really isn't all that bad in here we talk about heavy stuff but it's in the service of making things better for everyone so everyone should listen Spread the word in your workplace, in your social world, on social media, and click through to leave a review, subscribe to the show, download episodes, and send in your questions. Want more hereafter? Grief education doesn't just belong to end of life issues. Life is full of losses, from everyday disappointments to events that clearly divide life into before and after. Learning how to talk about all that without cliches or platitudes or simplistic, think positive workplace posters That's an important skill for everyone. Find trainings, workshops, books, and resources for every human trying to make their way in the world after something goes horribly wrong at megandivine.co. Hereafter with Megan Devine is written and produced by me, Megan Devine. Executive producer is Amy Brown, co-produced by Elizabeth Fazio, edited by Houston Tilly, and music provided by Wavecrush.